0: Amen. If you would open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6, we're going to continue our study there of Daniel. And while you're turning there, I'll just ask how many of you remember this from children's Sunday school? I loved this story when I was a kid. It's the lion's den. I mean, the flannel graph with the lions... All down there in the cave. I mean, you could just see it all in your head. What a, what a, what a gift. Let's keep giving that to our kids. Uh, so kiddos, if you've never heard this story, listen up. And parents, let's, uh, let's keep, keep giving. Keep giving these wonderful stories. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Daniel chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because because of an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find ground for a complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall, find, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king, Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdoms, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. And they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction you have signed but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. And these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet, and with the signet of his lord's, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then, at break of day... My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded... And those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel, for He is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Lord, thank you for your word. Would you help us this morning? Would you grow us in Christ? Lord, as we see Daniel in this amazing uh, event, will we be pointed ahead to the one who didn't escape death, but went into death for us? You, Christ, our King. Lord, may your Spirit be at work shaping us, molding us, giving us things to contemplate as we live our lives in this world. Help us. Or apart from you, this would all be useless. So would your Spirit come and guide. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> We all know the sensation um, when we're watching a movie of the scene shifting from one um, and then a lot of time goes by and then there's a, there's another scene. I, I was thinking about this and thought about uh, Gollum. Uh, if you know the Lord of the Rings, then you know his, his character arc. Um, so, it, I don't know if it's in all the versions, but maybe the extended version, I don't know, you can correct me after. So he begins his life as a hobbit, right, and everything is fine, and there he is uh, going fishing with his cousin, I think. Um, And then things change. They find a ring, he kills his cousin, and then time goes by, and his hair that looks kind of hobbit-like and quaint... Becomes stringy. And then the scene skips again, and then he's almost completely bald, and he's in a cave, and he's eating fish raw. And it's just this scene shift, scene shift, scene shift, and things are getting worse and worse and worse. In some sense, that's exactly what's going on in Daniel. The scene, it's not this smooth, clean narrative arc. The scene keeps shifting this, those in charge keep shifting. There's, there's been a lot of change that has occurred since the last time we saw Daniel. Belshazzar was under the gun then. The Medes and the Persians were just coming in. And this is some, sometime later after that. Again, the scene keeps shifting. And we're invited in to eat Each of those scenes, Daniel is now old. We're not exactly sure how old. Late 70s for sure. Maybe 80s. And power is shifting again. And and that sits at the heart of the story in Daniel. Several times, Daniel has been promoted... By different powerheads, he—you he, um, remember his relationship with Nebuchadnezzar—he's he, always had a, an uncanny ability with power. He, he has served something of a prophetic role, though to a nation that is not God's people. Okay, so Babylon is not God's people. But Israel are captive in Babylon, and Daniel sits at the center of that. And in many ways, he he is serving the leaders as the people of God. Year after year has gone by, and Daniel remains a captive in a foreign land. So you, you can see lots of good things going on for Daniel. But we need to keep in the back of our mind something that he knows very well, and that is this, he's still a slave. He's still a slave. He's not there because it's got um, nice uh, sandy beaches and lots of good entertainment, and he wanted to move his family there. He's there as an exile. Here's the thing to note as we come into this chapter. Daniel is, on the one hand, he is utterly extraordinary. He has been given by God all these abilities to understand dreams. Imagine waking up one day and telling someone your dream, or maybe not even telling them your dream, and saying, hey, I had this terrifying dream, and this person is able to tell you what the dream is and what it means. Daniel could do that. By God 's grace, Daniel had these remarkable gifts, extraordinary gifts. He, he could give the meaning. He was the only one in the kingdom who could give the meaning of the writing on the wall. Remember last week many, many Teckle parson? Yeah, these are weights. Everybody knows that, but what is going on with them? Well, Daniel could tell you, utterly extraordinary, but he 's also utterly ordinary. He's a faithful believer in God. One writer says this, quote, Few people seem to learn anything from Daniel. For all his wisdom, integrity, faithfulness, Daniel reaped the jealousy of his peers, the hatred of the ungodly, a plot against his life, and a death sentence in a lion's den. It's worth remembering at the outset today and sometimes we think of the Christian life and being disciples of Christ as these um, utterly crazy, unordinary things. But what gets him in most trouble is that he just simply loves God. He loves God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his strength. And he loves others. He, he, he loves his neighbor His greatness is not his, um, I, I think, reflecting on Daniel's life. His greatness is not all these extraordinary things that he does. His greatness is seen in his ordinary faithfulness. Hebrews 10, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. It's not so much Daniel's greatness, but God's greatness that's on display in him. With all his accomplishments and his incredible resume. Daniel doesn't waver in very simple things. And I think that's probably the biggest lesson in Daniel chapter 6. His simple faithfulness. Yeah, we can do extraordinary things if God allows. But most of what makes him shine is... Um, let's just real talk, it's the fact that he would go home and pray. That's what gets him in hot water. So a long period of time has passed since the events of chapter 5. The coup is over. Darius the Mede is in charge of the city. Babylonians are out. Uh, the Medes and Persians are in. Chapter 6 opens with a new form of government being introduced, 120 satraps, and we would call these something like governors. Again, this empire is huge. Babylon was massive. Once the Medes and Persians take over, it, its territory is expanded. It's, it's huge. Um, you, you could look it up. Yeah, that, that would be something good to read about. So 120 governors spread throughout this vast empire and then these governors are subject to three uh, leaders over them. We might call them something like presidents um, who are then subject to the will of the king. Again, this theme emerges since the beginning of Esther, we've seen it. And that is this, even in judgment, God is sovereign and in control and is working for the good of his people even while they're being judged, again, God's people are in exile, He is still at work for their good. That is hard for us to believe. Even when things are terrible in our lives, even when we got sick again, even when we didn't pass the class or or failed another test or messed up in our job or had some you know, unexpected train wreck hit us, even then, God is at work. That is sometimes hard to believe. God is at work. He is in control in Daniel 6, and and that is a comfort, even though things are chaotic. Daniel 6 has a lot of chaos. So we're going to look at the text today in three parts. Daniel in an old fight. Daniel's submission to authority and Daniel's deliverance and ours. Okay, first, Daniel in an old fight. And I realize this is an odd point, And it feels like a broken record because we, we were in Esther. And then we came to Daniel. And then we went to Revelation for Christmas. And, and this keeps coming up again and again and again. And you're like, stop talking about it already. I can't. The Bible talks about it again and again and again. The context for this old fight is jealousy. Daniel has risen to the top. He's one of the three presidents, as it were, over the satraps. Verse 3 goes further. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and the satraps because he was not because an excellent spirit was found in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Again, we see reference to the spirit in him, and that's kind of a waving flag to let us know, hey, it's not just Daniel's charm and, and wit that's getting him by. God is at work in him. Like if, if you want to look at Daniel and give glory, give glory to God. God is at work. And then, and then we are reminded that this jealous spirit, this desire to not, not just, hey, I, I just envy this guy, but I want to kill him. That was their plot. That takes us all the way back to Genesis 3.15, enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman will have a bruised heel, but crush the head of the serpent. Some really good theologians say something like this. Genesis 3.15 encapsulates everything that comes after it. So you could put the rest of Scripture as an asterisk behind that text. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Asterisk. The rest of Scripture. Here's how that unfolds. Here's how the the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, would ultimately crush the head of the serpent. That battle is raging throughout Scripture. And even though Christ has come, lived, died, was buried, raised, ascended into heaven, even though that's happened, it's still raging today. This cosmic old battle... It should not be surprising for us to find enemies being raised up against the people of God. Verse 5, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. They looked at his life. They went over his books. They looked at every single thing that they could look at, and they said, there is nothing that we can accuse him by. That's remarkable. Utterly remarkable. One thing to note is that we often assume that our greatest struggles as Christians will come early in our life as believers. Like when you're first a believer, that's really when you're going to struggle as a Christian. I think Daniel and several other places in Scripture prove the opposite to be true. It's as you grow and mature it can happen to you in your late 70s or 80s, a deep struggle, a deep battle, a battle for faith. No, it's not always youthful fit faith. Young faith is, is vigorous, and it's great, and everything feels fantastic. It's, it's as you age. I think Daniel is, is showing us something, flagging us to something that, hey, don't be surprised as you get older, being a Christian is hard. It doesn't get easier and everything goes away. Like now I've got it all figured out. That is simply not the case. Yes, you become more wise. Yes, the Lord gives certain graces, but it doesn't mean that you're done with trial and tribulation. Psalm 92, the righteous flourish like a palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. There is no unrighteousness in him. It's a beautiful thing as you age to bear fruit of the gospel but it doesn't mean things are going to be easy. The battle is marked, this this ancient battle is marked by cunning plots. They couldn't find any way to accuse Daniel, so they came up with one. They go to the king and say, hey king, we have a great idea that will honor you, that will serve you. Sign this injunction that says, no one can pray to anyone else other than you. And so they... The Persians and the Babylonian empire before them had this sense of a, the king is a god king. So the king, the, the physical person, existed in their pantheon of gods. So you, king, need to tell everybody what to do and tell them they can't pray to anyone other than you. And this plot is devious on two fronts. First, they bring lies. They say everyone is in agreement. All your subjects are in agreement. Was Daniel in that meeting? No, it's utterly a lie. The the first part of what they bring to the king is utterly a lie. Hey, everybody's in agreement. All the leaders were all in agreement. Second, they knew that Daniel was so loyal to God that if this decree got signed, they would utterly have him. They knew something of his character. They knew him so well that they knew that it didn't matter what was signed, that he wasn't going to move. Again, the kingdoms of light and dark are crashing. First Peter 5, that's what it made me think about. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, lion's den, seeking someone to devour. Have we become convinced that this is not the case for us? Have we become convinced that we live in a world that doesn't have evil powers that seek to destroy the people of God? If so, we are utterly self-deceived. You have utterly bought into a deistic, moralistic worldview if you believe that you live in a world where powers don't hate the people of God. The kingdoms of light and dark Are crashing here, and it's an ancient fight, and it's one that still rages until our Lord returns. Daniel is teaching us these valuable lessons. We have an ancient foe who hates us. Just as this ancient foe hates Daniel, it hated our Lord Jesus Christ, and it hates us as his people. This leads us to Daniel's submission to authority. Two kingdoms are on display. In this section, it's, it's very clear. The kingdom of darkness has made its decree. And Daniel lives his life in submission to the kingdom of God. It's similar to um, Daniel's friends in chapter 3. Daniel has a choice to make. Who is he going to serve? There's some differences. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were commanded to do something that they didn't do. Hey, you have to bow down to this massive idol that I've made or we're going to smoke you. And they didn't do it. The difference here for Daniel is he is being commanded not to do something, which is utterly, he's being utterly compelled by God to do, which is worship God and worship him alone. God tells us, I am God and there is no other. Sinclair Ferguson asks a hard question that I think we can all benefit from. If it's been convicting me this week, it should convict you a little bit too. He says this, would it make any substantial difference in our lives or the lives of our church fellowship if prayer were banned for the next 30 days? It's a great question. Prayer is a neglected discipline, a lost art among the people of God, yet it has been the hallmark of God's people since creation. The goal of all of this is communion with God. So, where are we going as a people? Ultimately, our lives are to be lived with God in communion with Him forever. And we have access to Him now by His Spirit, by prayer, and how often do we neglect that? Why doesn't our government shut down prayer in churches? It shut down prayer in schools. I thought about that this week. So, if prayer is such a threat to national security, why not shut it down in churches? And the answer is they probably don't have to. So, what? I mean, churches, do we really pray? Do we value prayer? As the people of God. They, they probably don't see it as a threat because it's largely not been a threat. Daniel lives his life in utter submission to the authority of God. That's his kingdom. That's the kingdom that he's rocking, and he he works for the kingdom of this world. That's his job. I love um, So there's this threat of death by lions, which is horrifying. Um, I love verse 10 so much. It's my favorite verse in the whole chapter. It says this, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, this could go a lot of different directions. From, from that line right there, he knew the document had been signed by the king. Then, the very next thing he does, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. I love that so much. Whose kingdom are you going to serve? Whose kingdom really matters? The very next thing it says He knows that it has been signed. He goes home to the place where he always prays, and he prays. It's beautiful. We can learn so much from this. He he is utterly submissive to God and, and does what he has always done. He changes nothing about his life. He faces Jerusalem. He wasn't commanded to. There's no, nothing in the text that would lead us to believe that. And he's not commanding others to do it. So why is he doing this? There's probably several reasons. He misses home. That's where he's from. He longs for home, And to him, the physical representation of the kingdom of God on earth is Jerusalem. He, he faces that reality. He is allowing his physical posture and his spiritual posture to crash together. He's not confusing. He's not praying to God like facing Jerusalem. um, He doesn't win spiritual brownie points. But his physical posture is a reflection of his spiritual um, desire. I want to go home. I want to be in the temple with my God. I miss my family. I miss my people. His hope and his prayer... (laughs) It's not in a broken building in Jerusalem, but a kingdom that can never be destroyed. Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort my people. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is over. Her iniquity is pardoned for she has received double for all her sins. Ultimate deliverance will come for Jerusalem. It will come when Christ himself, the the Lord Jesus, will be led outside the walls of Jerusalem. Into a slum and a hill, a, a, the place of the skull, where he would be delivered, over and crucified, and hung up as as a curse. We see even in Daniel's posture that he is he is anticipating something greater for him and his people. Calvin says this about this posture in prayer. Let us learn, therefore, when we feel ourselves to be too sluggish and cold in prayer, to collect all the age which can arouse our feelings and correct the inactivity of our consciousness. So are you um, struggling to, to pray? Do you struggle with regular prayer? Do whatever it takes. Basically, he's saying this is a fight that Daniel had to fight. And one of the ways that helped him was having an open window that faced Jerusalem and three times a day he would offer prayer. Do you need help? Use whatever help you can get. Do you fall asleep if you're praying, sitting in your chair? Get on your knees. Use whatever tools necessary. Two, we're told that Daniel prays and gives thanks to God. This term for prayer here is really interesting. It means to make his confession. Three times a day he was making his confession before God. I see him telling God about his life. Here's what's going on. Three, his prayer life was so disciplined that his enemies knew exactly what he would do and when he would do it three times a day on his knees. We we rightly think of Daniel in the Old Testament as a superhero, a superhero. Does that happen randomly? This guy had incredible gifts. We've seen them over and over and over in the, in the text. Is that random? No, it's not random. You, you can't hear some um, incredible musician, right, who, who just randomly learned how to master their instrument. You can't just wake up one morning and be a master of the violin. It takes work. It takes practice. Grind, 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 grind any professional athlete that you see. You're like, hey, I mostly look like them. I've got two arms, too, and two legs, too, and two eyes and a nose and ears and a mouth. I should be able to do that. Zero chance. Do you think they became an incredible professional athlete, able to do incredible things with their vision, with the incredible skill they had by sitting on the couch and eating potato chips? No, it takes work. What we see in Daniel's life is his entire life, his entire life was devoted to God. Is it any surprise that he could do the things that he was doing? or given the positions that he was given three times a day every day he was going to the Lord in prayer that doesn't happen by accident his heart was given over to God there's um, a book Malcolm Gladwell um, I think it's Outliers talks about uh, 10,000 hours of practice to become proficient at something you're like 10,000 hours that's not bad That's 416 straight days, 24-hour days, 416 of them. That's a year and a half with zero breaks, no sleep, proficiency. Daniel was proficient in prayer. Why do you think Daniel and his friends are so brave in the face of death? Is it just because they're superheroes like flannel flannel graph superheroes? No, it's because they prayed all the time. And even if they died, that's okay. I'm okay with it. That's why they're so gracious in death. They were constant in prayer. Verse 10 says prayer was his custom from the time when he was young. He did this his whole life. Fueled by pride and jealousy that the conspirators come together like, okay, we're going to the king. Hey, you signed the order. It's in effect for a month. The punishment for disobedience to your order is death by lions. You signed it. You signed the injunction. You know that the Medes and the Persians, even the kings, can't gainsay their own laws. They live in subjection to them. The accusation is another attack on Daniel. Daniel, who is, verse 13, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction that you've signed. Again, his enemies are belittling him. This is a strategy we saw with Belshazzar. He's just a slave, he's just an exile. He should die. Any law that we sign can't be broken. So the enemies of God sought to utterly destroy the kingdom of God in Babylon. That's exactly what's going on. Darius wrestles with the decision because Daniel's incredible. This guy is incredible. He's an incredible administrator. He gets things done. So Darius hates it. He wrestles with it. However, at the end of the day, it's more important for Darius to save face than to save Daniel's life. The sentence was carried out, verse 16, pretty remarkable, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. That statement that he makes right as Daniel is being placed into the den of lions and a a rock laid over it, he, he makes that statement. And. That made me think about Daniel's life in another way. It wasn't just that he was constant in prayer. He was constantly interacting with powerful people, and he was constantly talking about his God. Every single king that Daniel interacts with knows something of the true and living God from Daniel. It's this. He was an evangelist. Power did not intimidate him. Having a a certain position in, in a Corporation, or in in any job that you have, it was utterly unintimidating to him. He, He spoke truth to power. They all know about his God. I'm not saying that Daniel went around the courts of the kings preaching sermons, I highly doubt he did. But they all knew that he loved Yahweh, they knew his God. May your God deliver you. They knew His story. They knew the story of His life. Listen, I I, I do think evangelism is a gift. One that I don't possess. I'm not the most um, extroverted person out there. But our ability as people who live and function as Christians in the world, we are called to, to say something of the God that we that we serve. We are to open our mouths. Daniel, listen, Darius, a foreign king, as he's throwing his most trusted lieutenant into a death sentence, says, may your God, the God that you serve continually, deliver you. That's a remarkable statement. Somehow Daniel has navigated both his private and his public life in a way that presents the glory of God to everybody who's around him. I think sometimes we silo our lives off a bit. I'm not saying that we need to go to work and school and and, um, into our jobs and preach sermons. Like if you fly a plane, be good at flying the plane, please. Please. But I am saying that there's something to others around us knowing where we stand on who our God is. So this order is carried out. A stone is brought in place at the mouth of the den. Then we read, the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet of his lords, the king could do nothing to intercede. It's got his, his own seal. Does this remind you of Anything? Daniel being cast into a cave, a, a stone rolled in place and a signet, a seal put on it. Does it remind you of anything? Yeah, it's pointing us ahead to the greater one than Daniel. It's pointing us ahead to Christ. Matthew 29, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking False testimony against Jesus that they might put Him to death and they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward like Daniel, leaders were hell-bent literally on accusing Jesus and they could find no reason to accuse Him. And later in the same passage, we read this, order the tomb to be made secure, sealed until the third day lest the disciples go and steal Him away and tell the people He has risen from the dead. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone, setting a guard. Again, I believe that Daniel, as has been happening consistently, is pointing us ahead to the greater Daniel, Christ. Jesus, there's... Some comparisons and contrasts here. Daniel went into the cave and was spared death. The, the mouths of the lions that would rip him to shreds, their mouths were closed. Jesus went into that tomb receiving a death sentence. He went in dead. He faced death so that Daniel might have eternal life. He faced death death itself he was not spared the the mouths of the lions He, he took it being hung on a cross so that we might be offered life Babylon sought to seal the tomb so that Daniel wouldn't come out Rome and Israel sought the same for Christ but in both cases the sealed tombs did not hold God's man one came back from the threat of death and one came back from death itself. This leads to our last point, Daniel's deliverance in ours. Then at the break of day, also re- very reminiscent of the resurrection of our Lord, at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. You can imagine the sleep-deprived king running with his entourage to the place of the lions Death would be expected. This is apparently a horrifying death. I mean, if you, again, the flannel graph is awesome. It's fantastic. I loved it when I was a kid. Imagine death by a a ton of hungry lions in a cave. And you're tossed in there and it's sealed shut. Horrifying way to die. Terrifying. They care nothing about your feelings. They care nothing about you. You are, the, you are their food. It's horrifying. So he flies back. Sinclair Ferguson says, it's better to be a child of faith in a den of lions than being a king in a palace without faith. That's his remark on Darius. Darius, is, his life is shook. He's losing his best lieutenant better to be in that horrifying place as a person of faith. Even if the lions had ripped him limb from limb, it would have been better than to to be in that palace, cold and without sleep, worrying about what is going on. So in this case, the mouths of the lions were stopped. Daniel experiences the power of the age to come, breaking into this present age. Throughout the Old Testament, lions represent a disordered world. They are ferocious killers of man and beast, yet in the vision of Scripture, one day creation will again have harmony. Let me just read to you from Isaiah 11. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf, and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow shall and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. Daniel experienced this version of creation he experienced creation fixed it was ordered properly when he went into the cave things were the way they are supposed to be if you view that if you view miracles that way you will grow you will grow in the way you see Christ performing miracles he is not he is coming into a broken world and he is shifting that broken world back to right that's what miracles do That's exactly what we see happen in this cave. We weren't created by God to be eaten by cats. It's a broken world. While Daniel was in that cave, the world was right again. The angel was there with him, and the kingdom had come in that cave for a night. On earth as it is in heaven. Like others in the fiery furnace, Daniel did not pass this night alone. An angel was there with him. Daniel says, My God sent an angel to shut the mouths of the lions, and that no harm has been done to me. There's so much we could. Say, but we'll, we'll move on. When God redeems and saves, he delivers. There are always two sides, two results. One is salvation. Of course, that happened. Daniel was saved from the wrath and judgment because his life was hidden in God. And, and a couple of things happen along with that. The nations rejoice. Darius, as a result of God saving Daniel, Darius rejoices. I make a decree in all my royal dominion. People are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of lions. The first side of redemption is that celebration comes and glory to God. Praise the Lord. It's awesome. There's another thing that happens every single time. These two always sit side by side. The second side is here, and it's judgment. God comes to save, to deliver, but he also punishes the enemy. You can't get away from it in this text, and nobody ever presented this on the flannel graph. This is a horrifying thing that happens next. The true and living God saves, delivers Daniel, but the gods of the Medo Persian Empire are utterly unable to spare the plotters. Daniel goes to all those who, or Darius goes to all those who plotted, now that Daniel has been proven to be righteous, and he says, Now it's your turn. He takes them, their wives, They're children. And judgment comes. The disordered world comes. They plotted against God's man. Then they're thrown in. And before they get to the back of the cave, they're torn limb from limb. All their bones are broken. It's a terrifying scene, really. You always see these two, judgment and salvation, sitting side by side. Daniel was spared, but others received the curse. Listen, we all deserve curse because of our sin and rebellion, but in Christ we're spared the wrath of God because he took it in our place. Listen, the good news of the gospel is on display here. We deserve to be tossed in to judgment and wrath and curse. We deserve to be eaten up. But the cross says this, Jesus has done it for us. He took it. Again, He wasn't spared. He goes to the cross to receive justice for sin that He did not commit so that we might go free. The beauty and, and the glory of this text is pointing us to this from our New Testament lesson. He Himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He was crushed for your iniquities. Daniel walked out alive because one day Christ would not come out alive, he would go into that hole dead. This made me think about Luther's hymn, For still our ancient foe, this is this battle that's going on, Dost seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not its equal, did we. In our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this incredible lesson that you give us in Daniel 6. Lord, remind us of these things that we still live in the shadow of Genesis 3.15. Remind us that this ancient war is still going on even though it's already been won by you, Christ. Lord, remind us Though we deserve death, you took it in our place. Shape us by your gospel, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.